Возлюбленная Богом Церковь, начиная наше богослужение пред Господом, встанем, пожалуйста. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for this once again privilege to be in this place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. And so allow your inheritance in the name of the covenant of blood to be lifted to unreachable heights to us and to break all evil and sin that binds us. May in the service be cursed as before all the works of devil, illnesses, poverty, premature death, demonic dependencies, all forms of fears, depression, destruction, ignorance, covetousness, all of this, let it depart from the tents of your holy people. And so stand, Lord, on the place of your rest, you, in the ark of your greatness. And may your saints be clothed in your salvation, and may they rejoice before your countenance. Give us more from your Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, and allow us to find your holy countenance. I present the service into your divine arms. Guide it with your uplifted hand. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated. And so, as always, before we begin to immerse into the holy waters of our unfading inheritance in Christ Jesus, the unchanging epigraph to our study of our inheritance is found in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And so that we as members of the body of Christ partake with Christ in all that was written about him in Scripture, we will continue our study in the direction of our cooperation with the Holy Spirit and with the, um, with the Word of God in what we must do on our end so that we receive the right to set aside our former way of life in order to be clothed in a new way of life. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And according to the testimony of apostles and prophets, this promise was hidden from previous generations for, the re for that reason that it was a part of a promise related to the door of hope that was called to be revealed only during the end days according to the power of God through instruction and faith and only to those saints who will pay a price in order to enter into the category of the good wife that has the dignity of narrow gates in order to have the right to inherit the adoption of their body through the redemption of Christ and they will have paid the price for discipleship. 
And for the fulfillment of this commandment, there are three basic commands and verbs, three fateful commands and verbs. This is to set aside, to renew, and to clothe. Answering these fateful questions will determine whether we turn ourselves into vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath. Or rather, will we perfect the salvation that is given to us in the format of a deposit or will we waste it, because of which our names would forever be blotted out of the book of life? In a certain format, we have already studied the first two questions and have stopped to study the third question. Specifically, what conditions must we fulfill so that through our already renewed thinking, we could begin the process of clothing ourselves into the powers of our new man who is created by God in Christ Jesus in true righteousness and holiness of truth. With regard to this, we have stopped to study the condition that is contained in the 18th Psalm of David, in which the Holy Spirit unveils the conditions thanks to which our prayer of faith can cooperate with the name of God, Most High, or name of God, El Leon. And the essence of this requirement is so that with a noise we can take off the old man and cast him into hell and then replace the power of death in our body with the kingdom of heaven. This is the most responsible moment of our life when the earth will be slipping under our feet and we're going to feel like God is leaving us and that we feel like we are evil because all all evil will begin to come out from inside of us and we will be horrified from ourselves just like Moses was horrified from the snake the snake the serpent that that um, that was chasing him but before this he relied on the snake his staff until God said take the snake by the tail and when he took it by the tail the snake again became a staff and God said now this is not your staff any longer it is my staff and through it I will do wonders and miracles and as we have already said do not be dismayed uh, continue to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God begin to con continue to conti consider yourselves despite the fact that sin says what do you mean dead I am living look I am eating you alive you are burning in my lust, sin says, but you need to consider yourselves that you are dead to sin. And with your tongue, with your lips, you must consider and call the inexistent as existent. Consider that you have already died to sin. And then God will take this word that you speak and he will fulfill this for you. But in order to, to do this, we need to fulfill certain requirements. Not just to speak, but in order to speak, we also need to know something, right? We need to know. If a person does not have knowledge, he is not going to be able to speak. He speaks, but the words are going to be empty. Why? Because he has no knowledge, he has no information in the dignity of the faith of God that is placed in his heart. And so the essence of this condition is comprised of us and our distress upon taking off the old man so that we could call out to the Most High, like to our God, and proclaim the faith of our heart in the eight names of God that are comprised of who God is for us in Christ Jesus. So, what must I proclaim? Who God is for me in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, He has redeemed me from hell. He has redeemed me from the law of Moses that gives power to sin. 
and calls upon the wrath of God because the law causes the wrath of God upon a person, but God has redeemed me in Christ Jesus and He has adopted my body in Christ Jesus. He has already done this for me. And we must look upon this and we must proclaim these things, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, who we are for God in Christ Jesus. We are relatives of Him, right? We're not just just relatives. They might say far-off relatives, but I'm not a far-off relative. I am a son, and not just a son, a firstborn son. And each of you, doesn't matter what your gender is or your age or your social status, each of you are firstborns in Christ Jesus. Because He doesn't place non-firstborns in Christ, because in order for Him to be firstborn, for example, everyone um, runs one race, but only one receives a reward. Who? Christ. And we receive this reward in Him. He says, take it so that you receive it. Uh, try to place yourselves in Christ Jesus. How do you place yourselves in Christ Jesus? You look upon who God is for you, what He has done for you, and who you are for Him, as well as what we must do to inherit all of that which God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And we have noted that this parable is one of the strongest images that portrays the collaboration of our renewed thinking in the image of King David with the name of God Most High in resistance against our carnal mind in the image of King Saul and reigning sin in the face of the old man with his works. Yesterday I had spoken with one brother and he said, how do I understand? Here it talks about the king of Syria that he is going to um, cast out the depths of hell and he is told that you've become like we. And I told him, this is talking about our fleshly mind, our soul. It is cast down into hell. How? In Christ Jesus. Christ went down into hell and we were found in Him while He was there. But when He went, rose up, we rose up with Him. And when we rose up, we then had a renewed mind in the resurrection of Christ. In the death of Christ, we lose this fleshly mind, this Saul, this stiff person, the fleshly mind that resists the heart. People, When people say, I don't agree with this, or I don't understand it this way, I think each of you have felt it before when you've argued with your spouse or with one another, or you've tried to affirm or prove something, and deep in your heart you knew that you are not right your heart told you you're not right you're not right but we still neglected our heart at this time because the heart told us another thing the mind of Christ that's living in this infant said something completely different who can protect this infant only you you need to grow this infant in you to protect him from this fleshly mind, to protect this young King David. He, and he is anointed over this body and the other is anointed over the body. Why did God anoint King Saul over the body? You know, for this reason, because all of that which we speak goes through our mind. And when we are born from God, we are infants. Our spirit cannot control us. Then God, in order to save us, He anoints King Saul. 
He anoints King Saul so that this word can occur, and then King Saul acts in us. And then first he successfully acts, you know, when a person repents, everything is great, but then all of a sudden he begins to grow prideful. He begins to think of himself as if he is spiritual. Well, I figured that this would be better, just like Saul said. I figured that if I do this, this will be better. You see what Saul said to Samuel? He thought that what he was doing was right, and when Samuel said, but do you remember when I had anointed you, who you were, when I had taken you. You weren't this, you weren't like this. Then you hid under the chariot. You were humble, and I I needed you. But this, in fact, wasn't humility. This wasn't humility, because a humble person would never crawl under a wagon or chariot when God calls him. When the Lord said, who shall I send and who will go for us? The prophet Elijah said, here I am, send me. He didn't go and hide under the wagon. And when there was a call out or a decree called out to the Philistines, the Philistine army, who will come out and battle me? Everyone ran away, including Saul. And then King David came out and he said to Saul, Master, come and send me. I'm going to go and I'm going to fight with this uncircumcised uh, Goliath. I will cut off his head. He looked at him, a person that was was not big in stature. He had never fought in a war. He had never held anything in his hands, any weapons. He gave him his garments and he said, King David said, I can't walk and go fight in this. He had a different garment. He said, I had killed a lion and a bear, and I had killed them with my bare hands, and I had no scar in my body. This kind of power he had, and this wasn't this power of Samson. For Samson, in order to kill the lion, it's written that the Spirit of God came upon him, but it always dwelled in David. It dwelled in David because he had continually had this. He had continually had this, this, uh, this astounding power. I am talking about our new man right now. I'm talking about the resistance of the old man that uses our mind in captivity of the old man. And therefore, in order for God to receive the legal right, in order to stand and to battle against our bodies, in order to destroy reigning sin in the face of the old man with his works, with the power of his redemption, and to throw our old man with a noise out of our body into the underworld in order to resurrect in our bodies the power of redemption and with a noise forever cast our old man into hell. As I said, that there are three kings living in one body. That's a lot of kings. In one government, that's a lot of kings. And in one government, three kings, imagine. And each king tries to take the blanket on him. Same thing here. Why is it difficult for us? Why can't we understand what is happening inside of us? Whatever I want to do that's good, I can't. The evil that I don't want to do, I do unwillingly. Woe to me, who will deliver me from this? And then all of a sudden we hear a voice. Give thanks to God. I am the same. With my mind, I I follow the law of God. When he talked about the flesh, he meant his body. Sometimes the flesh means body, and sometimes flesh means the old man in Scripture, and not the body itself. And so, according to its character, the prayer song of David contains three parts in which the standard of the character of a just prayer is presented, which is inherent to kings, priests, 
and prophets. So we need to take not just this prayer, but other prayers of David, because all of these prayers are belong to kings, priests, and prophets. And if a person is not a king, a priest, and a prophet, and he takes this prayer, then it's not going to bring him any benefit. I have seen during uh, the war, this war in Israel that had just uh, that just occurred, how the Israelites had won, the Jews had won, how they cried out to God saying, Adonai. In their hands were the words of prayer, correct words. They spoke them and they cried out. The wall of the wailing wall was filled with tears. And God was silent. Why? None of them have the dignity of a king, priest, and prophet. For the words, the prayer words to have power, it's necessary for us to have the status of a king, priest, and prophet. I will remind you that the dignity of a king is comprised of our thinking. And I'm talking about as children of God, not just King Saul or King David, but this is our renewed thinking, renewed by the spirit of our mind, which gives us the authority to rule over the emotional sphere of our body and control it by the bridle as if controlling a war horse. The dignity of a priest gives us the opportunity or authority to draw near to God as a warrior of prayer in order to fulfill just intercession for the adoption of our body to the redemption of Christ. Because this is our calling. Our calling is not to evangelize the world. Our calling is to carry intercession for the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ. What benefit is it to man if he gains the whole world, but his soul perishes? That's what Christ said. We must understand all of this. I have already said that evangelism is when each of us becomes a light. That's it. That's what evangelism is. You are a light to the world, and a light to the world we become only when we have the dignity of a king, a priest, and a prophet. The dignity of a prophet gives our new man the right to enter into the Holy of Holies in the presence of the countenance of God in order to hear the voice of God under the lid of the golden ark in our heart. And for God, it gives the right to hear the voice of our intercession and respond to it. Sometimes I say to hear, but in fact, to listen. Because there is a difference between to hear and to listen. To listen means to hear and obey, to be submissive, to obey what we have heard. Same thing here. We hear the voice of God and we are ready to listen to it and obey. Meaning whoever hears, not just who hears, but who listens and then obeys, only he can understand the power of all of this. And so the first part in this prayer, in this allegory, the 18th Psalm of David, defines the state of David's heart as a warrior of prayer, which is the basis for the just status of his prayer that is inherent to kings, priests, and prophets. Because what is this, the state of the heart of a person will determine his prayer. If the state is a prayer state, it's a continual prayer. If you are a warrior of prayer, you are always a warrior of prayer. You are always, when there are people... Um, and the army that are they always have their weapon with them, right? They always and they are called to use it 
always when the moment is necessary. Others can't do this, but he is called to this is his responsibility. Just like a warrior of prayer, we have this weapon, and this weapon is our prayer. Therefore, the second part of the 18th Psalm uncovers the contents of a just prayer that is inherent to kings, priests, and prophets, which gives God the basis to deliver David from the hands of all his enemies. If God would have been on their side, then of course, he would have delivered them, and they would have long been d- delivered from Hamas and Hezbollah and the, from the jihad terrorists, and all the Islamists would be dust under their feet. This would have happened long ago. But having crucified their Messiah and not having repented in this and taking the words of prayer and not having in themselves a dignity of a king, priest, and prophet, they can't receive this. If God has mercy upon them, He has mercy upon them, not for them, but according to His word that He has promised to restore Israel in the geopolitical sense to once again create Israel. Because specifically upon this territory, He will return with His people. And from this territory, he will reign. The third part in an epic genre illustrates the prayer battle itself that is beyond understanding to the mind of man, because it is written in this kind of epic genre. In a certain format, we have already studied the first part and have stopped to study the second part, which unveils the components of a just prayer and the eight names of God Most High. It is specifically the acknowledgement and proclamation of the powers contained in the heart of David in the eight names of God allowed David to love God and offer him praise so he could be saved from his enemies. And for God, acknowledgement of the truth in his names in the heart of David gave him the basis to enable his capabilities that are contained in his eight names in battle against the enemies of David. I will read this place of scripture. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock of Israel in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Psalms 18 verses 1 through 4. And so here we have the eight names of God that we're studying. Even the most shortest kind of prayer, take these eight names and repeat them. Repeat them loud with expression who God is for you. So here, here we see who God is for us. The Lord Lord, you are my strength, you are my rock, you are my fortress, you are my deliverer, you are my rock of Israel, you are my shield, you are the horn of my salvation, and you are my stronghold. And again, repeat, if you have not yet learned how to pray, loudly and with expression, and when you say these words, think about the fact that He is this for you, what you are saying, He is this for you. This will give Him the basis to then take your prayer, your words, and then to help you with these words. But God can't help us only through the proclamation of our lips. There's no other way He can help us unless we proclaim it with our lips. In a certain format, as far as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, we have already studied our portion in the powers of the names of God, strength, rock, fortress, and deliverer. And therefore, we stop to study our portion in Jesus Christ in the name of God, rock of Israel. So, rock of Israel. 
it is a rock only to warriors of prayer. So God, with all of these names, is only these names for warriors of prayer, not for everyone. You will say, well, how about for infants? Infants must be found under the shadow of carnal people because they don't understand these meanings of these names. They don't understand them. They are swayed by all kinds of winds of teachings. They are swayed by all kinds of preachers, any kind of preachers. If they liked what he had spoken, then that's it. The most important thing is to them that, oh, how well he had spoken this word. I remember when I was, uh, when people had told me this when I was young, I said, well, can you say what he told me? And they said, well, why are you why do you care? I said, well, do you remember what he said? I haven't remembered anything. Then why, why are you hounding me on this topic? They don't even realize when I tried to figure out what this interesting thing this preacher had said. You see, if we haven't remembered anything, this means that we have wasted our time. We must take a notebook with us. We must take a pen and you must listen, and as soon as there is an, a thought that is new, that you hear brand new, write it down, and then meditate upon it, proclaim it, and then all of a sudden, say in yourselves, the, the sermon is going, and say inside of yourselves, let it be to me according to your word, Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I accept this. Accept this. Proclaim it, and then meditate upon it. Meditate upon it. Pray with these words and this, with these thoughts and it is going to help you. The name of God, a rock of Israel, points to the nature of the Most High and the character of His words, and it belongs to the warriors of prayer. And in Hebrew, it has the following dignities and meanings. It means the tip of a mountain cliff, stone or a stone fence, shelter, a shadow from the rock, victorious, elephant tusk, ivory, we have uh, once before have looked at these dignities before in the name of God, Rock of Israel. Because, do you know that in the flock of elephants, the patriarch is not the male, but the mother? You will ask why. Because the church, is an, this is an image of the church. She is the mother. She is Zion. She leads her children. She leads these sheep. And the throne of Solomon, or Solomon, an image of the Holy Spirit, David is an image of Christ, and the throne of Solomon was made out of elephant tusk, out of ivory. What does this mean? The Holy Spirit sits on the throne made out of elephant tusk or ivory. A tud, this is the strongest kind of bone, it's an elephant tusk. He prepares the bone of uh, the tusk of the elephant to the bone of Adam. And then he had covered this elephant tusk with gold. He had overlaid it with gold. And I think to myself, Lord, interesting. Usually, they, you take something expensive and you want to show it off, but the whole throne is from elephant tusk, ivory, and then you overlay it with gold. You could have overlaid it. He could have overlaid anything with gold. But to hide this kind of rich or this treasure, or when they're expensive stones, they were overlaid with what? Cedar. Cedar or cypress trees. 
Uh, all of a sudden, again, I ask the most expensive kind of precious stone. It's overlaid with some kind of tree or wood. No, but God wanted to show that inside the stronghold, it's a stronghold, but on the outside, there's this righteousness. Cedar trees represent righteousness. It also, Arachavazir also means dominion and consolation. This is the meaning of the name of God, Rock of Israel. On one hand, this kind of prayer in which David proclaims his portion in the eight names of God Most High tells us that this prayer is made on the boundaries of a covenant made with God. Because the number eight symbolizes the number uh, of a covenant made with God, an everlasting covenant, peace. On the other hand, this prayer is a strategic teaching that is called to be our calling in the holy garments for our clothing into a warrior of prayer in the dignity of kings, priests, and prophets, anointed by the Holy Spirit to establish a kingdom over our earthly body. And if a person through instruction and faith has not accepted the anointing given to him by God to rule over his calling comprised of his earthly body in the dignity of a king, priest, and prophet, again, in scripture we see a lot of times earthly body because God has created man from the earth, from the dust of the earth. Sometimes we think under uh, dust as something that is that is intolerable but under dust we see living minerals living minerals god had created man the body of a person from living living material not just red clay red clay has many different properties and elements it contains almost all micro elements that are found in the ground they are found in this red clay it is very rare where it is on the earth it's very rare to find it in Israel it was found before Sahof and Sarthon around Jordan the river of Jordan and that's there where Solomon had poured out the bronze sea he had created the form of this bronze sea uh, from this red clay and then this red clay had made it this was they had to take this whole ensemble, these 12 oxen, with the... Everything had to be molded from this red clay. And then all of a sudden, it had to be poured with this, with this bronze, overlaid with bronze. And this red clay is our body. And God, out of our body, He molds. He doesn't just... He doesn't just say, I want to make your body a temple. He says, I want the body to be in this way. How come Jordan? How come there? Because Jordan is where death was. But Sakoth was, Sarthan was the height, the city upon which the vessels flowed. And there before them was this, was this part of the land that had red clay. There is where victory is over death. And there is where these things come from, these things that make us a temple unto the Lord. Only the temple of the Lord will be clothed in incorruptible pearls, and only the temple of the Lord, and that's where the power of life will be resurrected. But we become a temple when we accept this promise by faith, and we begin to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And we begin to call the inexist inexistent power of life in our earthly body as existent. 
From this moment, God begins to view all of you as a temple of the Holy Spirit from this very moment. Doesn't matter what you are feeling. Doesn't matter that you are falling, you get right back up again. Doesn't matter that you are not yet capable of controlling your mouth yet. As soon as you say a word that's incorrect or or wrong, you understand this because your conscience is telling you, no, you shouldn't say this. And then what must you do right away? You must take back your word. The centurion says, Lord, um, I have... I say to one, go to the other, go to the other, and they go and they do this. Say the word, I will go and do. I'm saying the word, they obey the word. Say the word. Why do you need to go there? My servant will come. And Christ looked at him and said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. This is the faith of God. This is the faith of God. Therefore, the property and lexicon in the definition of the name of God, Rock of Israel, as all previous names of God Most High, cannot be found in any dictionaries of the world. Considering this necessary union of God and man in the clothing of our earthly body in the pearl of incorruption, it becomes fateful important for us to define God's role and man's role in every sphere of our being. Because the majority of Christians, due to their ignorance, which is the result of their stiffness, strive to fulfill the role of God, which leads to perdition. Because fulfilling the role of God, a person presents himself as God. I won't say, take too much time, but, for example, when a person gives the product of his thinking, uh, releases the product of his thinking, mixing revelations, received the preached word, and in doing so, he places his thoughts equal to the thoughts of God. Or when a person serving God with tithes and offerings, instead of searching for God in his righteousness, takes the role of God upon himself and searches in this unique service, so-called freedom from spiritual poverty and material success, which he portrays as special kind of spirituality, as well as when a person, instead of growing the tree of life in the Eden of his heart that was formerly cleansed from dead works in the fruit of a meek tongue, searches for manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, anointing of the Holy Spirit, and blessings of the Holy Spirit, instead of actually searching for the giver, anointer, and blesser. Here is another destructive item that leads a person to eternal perdition. This is when he, instead of searching for communication with God and offering him fruit of righteousness in order to be a light for the world, he indeed strengthens in his personal righteousness as the source of which is his own flesh, and he directs all of his capabilities toward evangelism, which God did not send him to, and is fond, he's fond of prophecies. This person has, does not yet have the dignity of a king, priest, and prophet, and he is swayed by all kinds of prophecies that on the pedestal of his priorities stands higher than the truth of the written word, that is, the truth, the true prophetic word. And for this purpose, to... Uh, in studying our portion in the previous names of God, we arrived at the need to study the following questions. What characteristics and categories define our inherited portion in the name of God, Rock of Israel? What purpose in the realization of our salvation, on the foundation of which lies the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ, is our inherited portion in the name of God, Rock of Israel, intended to fulfill? What price is necessary to pay to give God the basis to be our Rock of Israel in the realization of the salvation of our soul? 
given to us in the seed in the kingdom of heaven in the format of a deposit. And all of this is given to us in the seed of the word of truth in the format of a deposit. And finally, by what results can we define that God is truly our rock of Israel in the realization of our salvation that is comprised of the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ? I remind you, without having clear and concise answers to these questions, which we can receive only through instruction in faith and in their irrefutable order of the structure of divine theocracy in which the body of Christ functions. If this sermon is spoken among people who have the structure of democracy, this word will not work. They don't accept one head. They have a whole brotherly council. Each has their own head. And this brotherly council, they tend the, to the pastor, not the pastor them, but they tend to the pastor. And each member has their own head and their own opinion. All of a sudden, amongst one another, when they meet, they say, well, sister, how do you, this word that you hear, how did you understand it? Or what's your opinion on it? How do you act toward your pastor? So people are strange. They come, a person comes to me, a guest says, how do you act toward Benihin? I said, how do you act toward your pastor? He says, what do you mean my pastor? I don't, I don't act toward him in any way. I said, get out of here. What am I going to answer to you that how, how I view Benihin? You understand these people? What they are doing is they are a gathering of cult-like people. But among them, there are those that fear God, that see this, these things occurring. That when someone says from the pulpit incorrectly, the Holy Spirit gives them a revelation according to Scripture, not this way, but this way. And He lives according to this revelation. And God is holding these people there. He knows how to save them. Then, when there's going to be a cry from heaven and it has already been cried out, leave Babylon, then they are going to leave it. They don't need to remain there. They have been trampled on there. They were reproached against. And so, without obedience to the preached word of the person who carries the powers of the fatherhood of God and his helpers, we will have no opportunity to receive a reward in the fruit of righteousness from the seed of the deposit that we have placed into circulation. As it is written, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. We should keep in mind that if, upon proclaiming our inherited portion in the name of God, Rock of Israel, we see these powers outside of our heart in the proclamation of our lips, we will move forward in an unfaithful direction. So, we must take and proclaim it, and to proclaim it immediately as our belonging, as our belonging, given that God, in His authoritative and unchanging names, is the portion of inheritance only in the boundaries of His temple, which is the body of only the person who has grown the tree of life in the Eden of his heart, offering its fruit twelve times each, each year, the leaves of which that serve as light to the world, given that through this light that comes from the depths of his spirit, he has the ability to heal people from sin. This light are the leaves of these trees. And in this manner, 
only having grown a meek tongue because a meek tongue is a tree of life and one that is not bridled is destruction only who has he who has grown in his heart a meek tongue he becomes a partaker of the good wife thanks to which in his heart reigns the grace of god and before we receive the power for the right to proclaim our inherited portion in the name of God, Rock of Israel, as the faith of our heart, it will be necessary for us to take off the mantle of our intellect that has the audacity to inspect the word of his apostles and be clothed in the mantle of a disciple of Christ, because only the heart of a disciple of Christ has the ability to incline her ear before the word of a person who is given the powers of the fatherhood of God and his helpers, and can be prepared to accept the seed of the planted word about the kingdom of heaven. And again and again, we will remember that only the person who desires to hear the word of God, to hear it, looks closely at this word, lives according to this word, dwells in this word, and it dwells in him, can overcome and battle against the ancient serpent and run away from the snares of devil in order to inherit the salvation of his body through the redemption of Christ. In a certain format, we have already studied the essence of the first two questions and have stopped to study the third question tied to the condition giving the Holy Spirit the basis to lead us into the inheritance of the portion of the name of God, Rock of Israel. The third question is comprised of this. What price is necessary to pay to give God the basis to be our Rock of Israel? The first component of the price that is called to give God the basis to be our Rock was already the subject of our food and attention during our previous sermon. This was comprised of our decision to heed the commandments of the Lord, which will give us the right to exit out of Babylon, living in our body, and mixing the revelations of the preached word with the waste and emissions of the intellect. As well as Babylon that represents our church in the subject of the sermons of those who mix and distort the truth with the emissions of their intellect, so that we can flee and find a good wife that has the dignity of a narrow gate. The second price, giving God the basis to be our rock, which we have stopped to study. We started studying it last week and we have stopped to study it. This is our payment for the ability to live among the devouring fire of holiness. Isaiah 33, verses 14 through 16. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Answer. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gains of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. So, the inheritance of the portion in the name of God, Rock of Israel, will become his, his fortress on this rock. Bread will be given him, and his water will not run dry. And if you've paid attention, in this passage, the reward for our ability to live among the devouring fire of the Most High is presented in four signs. So, first, we always look at the reward. 
Because if we do not see the reward, we won't want to pay a price. For what? What would we pay the price for? But when we see the reward, it is going to uh, to lead us, and we will easily pay the price. And this is the price. We will dwell on high. Our place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given to us from heaven, and the living water of the Holy Spirit, accepted by us as the Lord and ruler, being made in our heart as water, will not run dry. Whereas the price for the right to live among the devouring fire of holiness is comprised of five signs. This is to walk righteously and speak uprightly in our heart, to despise the gain of oppression, to keep hands away from bribes, to shut our ears from hearing about bloodshed, and to shut our eyes from seeing evil. We have already studied four components of the reward that is called to motivate us to fulfill the five necessary conditions required in order to live among the devouring fire of holiness. We have stopped to study the first out of the five requirements of the price that gives us the right to live among the devouring fire of holiness of the Most High. This is the decision to walk righteously and speak uprightly in our heart. The Psalm of David Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Psalms 15 verses 1 through 2 this is another place of scripture but it also says the same thing I specifically brought this place of scripture because in the presence of two or three witnesses every word is firm in order to do the truth or practice truth and speak the truth in our heart you must have certain knowledge received through instruction and faith what properties are truth and righteousness endowed with and how should you distinguish righteousness from lawlessness and truth from falsehood in your heart otherwise the command to practice righteousness and speaks the truth in your hearts will remain for us a kind of vague formulation that everyone will perceive as a perversion of their mind. So, we cannot practice righteousness if we don't know what righteousness is. We can't, if we can't define it, we can't practice it. Take any person and ask him what is truth and what is righteousness. And they will tell you, these are twins. This is one and the same thing, they'll say. But what is it? And they won't be able to answer anything else. Whereas from the first book of Scripture to the last one, this is it's spoken about. We must understand all of these things. So the first question, what is righteousness and truth in nature and definition? And what purpose are righteousness and truth called to fulfill in our relationship with God? in the adoption of our body and the redemption of Christ. To distinguish these two terms expressed in the words righteousness and truth and not view them as twins, although they resemble one another like a son resembles his father and a daughter resembles his mother, because truth reproduces itself in righteousness just as a father reproduces himself in the son and a seed reproduces itself in the fruit. Truth is always first, righteousness is always secondary. Truth produces righteousness, they are not twins. The Father and the Son, they are not twins. This is the fruit of, this is the fruit, righteousness born from truth. Truth is a state of a human heart and righteousness is an expression of it. Therefore, again, I repeat, truth is the state of a good heart that is cleansed of dead works in which dwells the faith of God in the format of wisdom of the reigning teaching of Christ, whereas righteousness or justice is an expression of this state in the fruit of the lips that proclaim the inner state of the faith of our heart. 
and using the members of our body as members of righteousness through our lips, proceeding from the fact that justice or righteousness is truth in action or the result of that which truth produces. In the words written about David, we numerously read that he reigned over all of Israel and administered judgment and righteousness. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. For David to administer judgment and righteousness that is comprised of justice over all the people, it was necessary for him to have in his heart a kind of core of truth or a state of truth. And this state had to have been gained no other way than through his genetic inheritance, which he could inherit through instruction and faith only according to the lineage of Abraham, whom God had made the father of all believers, those who have been circumcised in the flesh and who have not been circumcised. Because the true practice of righteousness and acts of justice can come only through the truth that abides in the heart of a person. And therefore, the state of the heart of a person will determine his practice of righteousness or his works of righteousness. For from within, says Christ, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. This he had spoken to the Pharisees when they talked about his disciples. Why do your disciples eat with their hands? He said, answered to them and said, if, if it's with their hands, it doesn't defile a person. But these are those things, the things that come from your mouth defile a man because it comes from a heart. Lips are just the weapon that our heart uses. Similar words Jesus had repeatedly directed to the religious elite of Israel, who, according to him, were not born of the truth, although they considered themselves knowledgeable experts of the law, all while strengthening in their personal righteousness, which was evil in the eyes of God because it rejected the righteousness of faith which God had imputed to Abraham, making him the father of all believers. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12, 34. And therefore, people who were strengthened in their personal righteousness then and today not only could not understand the words of Christ, but also resisted the words of Christ and accepted his words as personal insults in their address. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but He sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. They didn't even have the ability to hear the word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. From an analysis of the above words, it follows that if a person is not born from truth, he will not 
he will be incapable of practicing righteousness, and thus all of his so-called good works will not be made in God and for God, and all of that which is not made in God and for God is viewed by Scripture as evil and as a forgery of the truth. And since we have mentioned birth from the word of truth, then from this it follows that truth, firstly, is personified in God and is one of the title names of the Godhead. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. Jeremiah 10.10 Jesus, walking along the cities and villages of Israel, preaching the kingdom of God of Israel, said of himself that he, like his heavenly Father, is a personified truth. He preached not about salvation, he preached about the kingdom of heaven, because salvation is in the kingdom of heaven. Salvation is not given separately, and kingdom of heaven isn't given separately. Salvation is given in the kingdom of heaven, and he preached the kingdom of heaven. He said of himself that he, like his heavenly Father, is personified truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. In a letter to the Church of Christ, Apostle John testified that one of the names of the Holy Spirit is also truth. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. 1 John 5, 6. According to this and other places of scriptures, it follows that truth is not just the title name of God, but also the natural state of God. And so even people born of God will have in their spirit an informationally programmed state of truth, thanks to the fact that they have been born from God. You understand that to have a program in yourselves, it is necessary to then choose this program because when we receive we are born of god and we receive in god in our new man there is an informational program of truth we have the informational program of the old man in us according to which we lived according to because of which we grow ill because of which we decay because of which we slander against one another and gossip about one another this is the program now there's another program but that program is not yet enacted we were born with this program but we haven't yet used it an infant can't use this program in order to use this program an infant needs to leave infancy he needs to die to his nation his household and his corrupt desires he must be taught how to do this then he must be taught how to accept in his heart the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ he needs to give be given the full teaching of the teaching of Christ I said what is comprised of your fullness I ask others Christ saves Christ heals Christ baptized in the Holy Spirit and guys Christ will return that's the teaching of a lot of people Foursquare church that's what it's known as Foursquare teaching I should say but in fact this isn't the full gospel or the full teaching this is not the full gospel here it doesn't talk about a calling well why do you need baptism in the Holy Spirit the whole Christ baptized in the Holy Spirit why do you need it what's the purpose of it yes Christ will return but are you able to meet him with boldness or are you going to say how are we not your children we had preached by your name and we had preached in your streets and he's going to say I never knew you well we need to make sure that this does not happen 
Therefore, only when we give preference to the program of God, the carrier of which is our inmost man or a new man, we can carry in our heart the state of truth, which will allow us to spread this state onto our soul and body. You see, for this it's necessary to cooperate with our mind. So, we hear with this with the heart, and we need to immediately obey our mind, because our mind begins to ask millions of questions, a lot of thoughts, well, how, how so? You must tell him, listen, close your mouth, and that's it. Right now, I am going to do, and you are going to obey me. Furthermore, Scripture defines truth as all of that which comes from God. These are His revelations, His laws, His commandments, and His judgments. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. Psalms 119, verses 138. However, to establish that the law of Moses is also the truth, it is necessary to make some clarifications. For example, Apostle John writes, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 1.17 There is, if we don't dive into this uh, verse, we will think that the law of Moses was not truth because the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came, did not come from Moses, they came through Jesus Christ, this verse says. In this case, under the word law, we are referring to the product of truth expressed in the righteousness and justice of God that is called to give power to sin in the flesh in order to bring out the wrath of God upon the old man that lives in the body of a violator of his law. On the basis of many places of scripture, the law truly brought out wrath and was not called to reveal grace and truth to a person who was not the descendant of truth by origin. So these people, they were not born of God. That's why they were given the law. This law was given to the sinner. They are not they haven't been born of God. Because of which the law of Moses is given for a person who is not born of the seed of the word of truth, and it was not called to nor could bring a person not born of the seed of the word of truth to the perfection inherent in God. As it is written, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Hebrews ten one. He had shown a shadow. He had these goodnesses in him, in the shadows and his images. But he was not called to do this because before him stood not those not, 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 not those people. From this and other places of Scripture, it follows that despite the fact that the law lacked the spirit of grace and truth, it was still present in its shadows and images. As it is written, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. All of this is called to occur in the body of Christ, in the temple of our body. Whereas the Jews did not have the body that be a temple. They had one temple and they always went there to pray. When you look at certain program, TV programs, I have the Israel News. And every day, for about 30 minutes, if I have time, I will look at the this news program. And they always begin this program by saying, every Jew that is somewhere out there in some kind of country, he is praying a in the direction of Jerusalem. Each Jew being found in Jerusalem 
prays in the direction of the temple where the wailing wall is. So they, they physically do this, but they don't understand that they need to look at who God is for them in Christ Jesus, whom they have crucified, and what he has done for them. Moses had said, a prophet God will bring from among you. Whoever does not listen to this person will be destroyed from among the people. He talked about the Messiah. They waited for him. They still wait for him. But there is a veil on them. For 2,000 2000 years, God is looking at them with wrath and anger. They are hated by many countries of the world. Today, now more than ever, this hatred is so powerful that governments of countries, they can't do anything with this. Across all of Europe, in America, in Canada, everywhere, they have begun to... um, people have begun to have disgust over them they are persecuted where are they going to be saved they are going to then be brought to Israel and there is going to be judgment that is fulfilled there and so Christ has shown this Uh, And all sacrifices, feasts, and decrees of the law, they pointed to Christ and his relationship with his church. And for the hidden in the shadows of the law of grace and truth to become the property of man, God set his son so that he could redeem a person from the curse of the law. And for the incorruptible inheritance, which was in the shadow and images of the law, to become the property of the new man born from the seed of the word of truth. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So, when we, with the law in Christ Jesus, die to the law, He has redeemed us. We must participate. We have a role in this. We must, in baptisms, immerse ourselves and understand what happens. Why do you need baptism in the Holy Spirit? God has baptized me in the Holy Spirit. I said, well then, what's what's greater, baptism in water or baptism in the Holy Spirit? I ask. You can't say what's higher or what's less, but what's first is usually baptism in water, because baptism in water, a person makes a covenant with God. And baptism in the Holy Spirit, he has not been taught that baptism in the Holy Spirit, he also makes a covenant with God, but he doesn't know about this. And that's why a lot of people, baptism in the Holy Spirit doesn't give him anything, because he thinks that he becomes spiritual at this moment. He thinks that this is the Holy Spirit, that that it is the Holy Spirit speaking through him. But it is his own spirit. He, upon baptizing the Holy Spirit, he receives the ability to speak in tongues. And these tongues is a jellic tongue. It is not the tongue of God. Our mind doesn't understand it, and devil does not know this. And that's why we see it, say it in mystery. But that does not mean that we're spiritual. Apostle Paul directly said, you do not have any lack in any gifts, but you are carnal, you are fleshly, and I cannot speak with you as if you are spiritual, but because you are carnal in Christ. But a carnal person does not accept what is from the Spirit of God because he considers it as foolishness. That's why Christ has redeemed from the curse of the law only those people who have been taught how to die with the law to the law in the broken tablets of testimony in order to receive the new tablets of testimony, the resurrection of life. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Apostle Peter had said, even for the Jews as well, there is no other name under heaven by which you should be saved. The one whom you have crucified is the one through whom you can be saved, and there is no other name and for the circumcised as well. And so the price for, of our redemption from the curse of the law is comprised of the fact that Christ became a curse for us, thus having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. So it's written, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Where did he do this? He did. He does this in the body of a person. Because if he does this somewhere else outside of the body, it won't have any kind of relation to man. We must understand the holiness of the law and the handwriting that destroys this law in us. When we understand this, that all of this occurs in our body, that he destroys with his teaching the handwriting that was against us. Because in us, when we were born, then our new new man has God's law. He has a program. And this law, immediately, despite the fact that it has an image of grace and the program of grace, but this program of grace cannot yet be revealed. It, on the contrary, it immediately becomes deadly and it kills. Why? Because it sees the old man. It sees sin in the body. How can it give grace to a person in whose body is the informational organ program of sin who is submissive to reigning sin. How can he be given grace? No, the law, then what does it do? It discovers the sin. The law discovers sin, gives power to the sin so a person can see what is in him. And then when a person sees the sin, he must with the law die to the law in the death of the Lord Jesus. And only then he can turn on the informational program of grace. He begins to work as a program of grace. Only when he leaves infancy, because it is impossible to die to your nation, to your household, and to your corrupt desires while being an infant, while being a babe. And so, according to this and other places of Scripture, this kind of blessing of Abraham is comprised of a kind of righteousness of God that is a product of truth and that can be given only independent of the law as a gift of grace through redemption in Christ Jesus. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed by being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You see, this was even the laws and prophets. The Lord testified there that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. And so from the knowledge and implementation of this component in our life will depend the ability for the handwriting of requirements that were against us to be wiped out as well as the capabilities of God's goodness toward us. On one hand, the word righteousness in the format of the fruit of our spirit in Hebrew means justice, purity, reliability, and loyalty as something firmly based, unshakable, and not subject to change. 
On the other hand, under the word righteousness in our heart is revealed the cultivating action of the fruit of truth that opposes lawlessness, unrighteousness, uncleanness, and filthiness, carriers of which among every holy congregation are people belonging to the category of tares. Or those that are called. As it is written, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. This isn't spoken about the world, this is spoken to the church. He who is unjust, he who says this is not sin, who justifies it, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. When he says this is not filthiness, he is filthy. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Revelation 22, 11. And so, based on this, I will remind you that to be righteous means to be justified by God to be reinstated, to be built in God, to be fair in God, to be prepared for battle, to be direct, to be level, to be correct, be firmly founded, stand steadfast in faith, to be recognized as loyal and reliable, to bear the fruit of truth. Proceeding from such a meaningful and amazing definition, it follows that according to Scripture, righteousness as a product of truth is also one of the title names and virtues that characterize the nature of God and the nature of the kingdom of God within us. But the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. Let me remind you that in Scripture the term righteousness refers to the works of a righteous person which express themselves to the state of his heart, in his thoughts, in his words, and in his actions. And in the way in which he dresses in order to not seduce the opposite gender. Righteousness is justice, blamelessness, legality, wisdom, faithfulness, constancy, truth, reliability, hardness, meekness, goodness, nobility, steadfastness, holiness, generosity, mercy, long-suffering, and lovingness. I can continue and continue. But it is through the righteousness of faith given by God in the format of justification for those people who were born from the seed of the preached word of truth First, God regulates and builds his relationship exclusively only with a righteous person. Furthermore, second, God performs his judgment by which he justifies the blameless and accuses the wicked. Third, God shows his mercy to the vessels of mercy and turns away his wrath from them. Fourth, God rewards the righteous with good and gives him eternal life. Fifth, God through the righteousness of faith endows his people with wisdom. Sixth, through righteousness, which contains wisdom, God overthrows the strength of our uncrucified soul. And seventh, through the righteousness of faith, God reigns in our hearts with grace to eternal life. And so, the second question, what is comprised of the price or requirement giving us the ability to dwell in truth and righteousness? I think you've understood what truth and righteousness is. Truth is a state. Righteousness is the fruit of truth or the product of truth. This is truth in action. And so, the first component of the price for dwelling in truth and righteousness, giving us the ability to live among the holiness of the devouring fire in the dwelling of the Most High, is comprised of accepting and acknowledging over ourselves the delegated authority of God in the face of the righteous man he has delegated.
from the ends of the earth we have heard songs, glory to the righteous, Isaiah 24, 16. What's interesting is that the earth is round. It doesn't have an edge. When the word of God says from the ends of the earth, it doesn't say literally, um, uh, literally the earth. What should we view as ends of the earth? This is referring to the earthly body of a person that has a partaking to the wife, the bride of the Lamb, who acknowledges over herself the authority of the person clothed in the powers of the fatherhood of God. So, from there, that's where we hear, from this earth. Why is it talk about from the ends? Why the ends? Because it comes from where? Where does it come from? Where does oil upon the garments and then falls from the tunic or from the from the from the beard it comes from the body from the ends and from there we hear this song glory to the righteous the ends of the earth in Hebrew will mean the following the following meanings the shadow of God Almighty so from the ends of the earth is a person who has over himself the shadow of God Almighty, the veil of God Almighty, the wings of God Almighty, the boundaries of God Almighty, and the authority of God Almighty. Boundaries is always the end. God acts in the boundaries, the boundaries of our body. That's why we see from the ends of the earth, the boundaries. But in fact, the earth itself is round. Jeremiah talks about uh, talks about the land being round and then through another prophet from the ends of the earth. This would, I had found people that, that say that the earth is not round and they say, I will prove it. I say, well, how will you prove it? I said, sit on a plane and then go up on a plane 12 kilometers up in the air and you will see that the earth is round. Already from 12 kilometers, you can see how the earth, um, the earth rounds, that it's round and it's not flat. And so, with regard or in connection with such an expanded meaning, this verse could have several more semantic versions that reinforce each other. From people who were under the shadow of the Most High, we have heard songs, Glory to God, the Righteous One. From the people who are under the veil of the Most High, we have heard songs, Glory to God, the Righteous One. From people who are under the wings of the Most High, we have heard songs, Glory to God, the Righteous One. From people who are under the wings of the Most High, we have heard songs, Glory to God, the Righteous One. From people who are found in the boundaries of the Word of the Most High, we have heard songs, Glory to God, the Righteous One. And from those who accept the delegated authority, we hear the song, Glory to God, the Righteous One. The second component of the price for dwelling in truth and righteousness, giving us the ability to live among the holiness of the devouring fire and the dwelling of the Most High, is comprised of the price to obtain knowledge of the truth about the adoption of our earthly body through the redemption of Christ. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job 19, 25-26. I didn't just read this place of scripture. This is the most ancient book in the Bible. This is the most ancient passage about the adoption of our body. And Job knew about this. This was revealed to him. When his body was found in, um, in great illness, in strong illness, 
When his body was becoming destroyed, he had pain day and night. He couldn't fall asleep. Everyone had rejected him. God was silent. He didn't say anything. His children were killed. His riches were taken away from him. And this, but this was a prince. When he got up, the elders were quiet, grew quiet, and the young ones too. They sh- trembled. And now, all of a sudden, he was walking by and he is spit upon because he was ailing. But he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. He knew about redemption. And he talked about the body. He didn't just talk about anything. He talked about his own body. To be confident in the restoration of our earthly body from the dust by the redemption of Christ, which determines our calling in Christ Jesus, means to work with God in the knowledge of the truth about the adoption of our earthly body through the redemption of Christ. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We are talking about freedom in Christ Jesus. Only through our dwelling in the preached word that is known by us, it can make us free from sin. If we do not acknowledge this truth, it will not make us free from sin. Only when we know the truth, acknowledge the truth, it makes us free from sin through the righteousness of our faith, which is the fruit of truth that comes from the seed of the word of truth. So, when the fruit of our lips begins to speak this, then God does this for us. Considering that Jesus gave the mandate of His power and His messengership to His apostles so that His truth would make us free from the power of sin and death, we need to acknowledge the authority of a delegated teacher in the face of a certain apostle of Christ and abide in the words preached by Him. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. You see, Christ directly says, he who I sent and who accepts him accepts me. Through the acceptance of a specific person in the dignity of an apostle, we receive the opportunity through this seed of the word of truth preached by him to receive justification freely by the grace of God which is called to adopt our body through the redemption of Christ. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. Furthermore, the third price for dwelling in truth and righteousness, giving us the ability to live among the holiness of the devouring fire in the dwelling of the Most High is our decision to forgive offenses or resentment before the setting of the sun. While angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Ephesians 4, 26-27. So when the sun is setting in our anger, and when we lay down with our anger, we go to sleep, we give place for the devil. Forgiveness, I'll remind you, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a purposeful, volitional action, coupled with a discipline of our mind and our heart, designed to lead our wounded emotion to freedom from sin, called resentment, which is a devil's snare and trap into which he catches people who refuse to eradicate resentment from their heart. I have been taught to immediately, doesn't matter what my emotions are, how wounded they are, how hurt they are, I say in my spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive. This is my 
decision. God isn't doesn't go based on what you feel. He goes based on your obedience. If you agree, you agree and you speak, and He imputes this to you as righteousness, and then He will then heal your wounds and your emotions. Deuteronomy twenty four ten through thirteen. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. If the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall, in any case, return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. Under the pledge, which ended up in the hands of our neighbor, God says, if you take a pledge from a poor neighbor, don't go to sleep until um, until the setting of the sun. Return his garments to him. He doesn't lay down naked. Under the pledge, which ended up in the hands of our neighbor, our clothes are presented. Our garments, under which the image of our righteousness is visible, which ended up in the hands of our neighbor because of the damage we caused to our neighbor. If you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So here, when someone offends us, his righteousness ends up in our hands. Now, the thing is, is that not just his, but our righteousness as well is, is under in this state of loss. If we do not return the garments to our neighbor, if we do not forgive him, we will then lose our garments as well. He will be naked. You have not forgiven him, but you yourselves will remain naked. God will not forgive you. So if our neighbor who offended us asked for forgiveness from us and repented before God, and we in turn refuse to forgive him and restore our previous relationship with him, God will impute this to us our sin as well as our resistance of his commandments and we ourselves will be naked in the sight of God. And our neighbor who repented before us and before God will be restored in his right to righteousness. Resentment along with gossip and false suspicions is the most common sin among the people of God, which stands as an insurmountable obstacle on the path to brotherly love designed to transfer a person from the state of death to the state of life. Already today, the hell of the underworld is overflowing with people who have died while keeping a grudge against their neighbor in their hearts. And at the same time, they were sure that they were going to heaven, despite the fact that their hearts did not abide in truth and righteousness. By dwelling in truth and righteousness, they would have forgiven their neighbor, because the truth calls for this, justice calls for this. We should firmly know that resentment and truth cannot simultaneously dwell and coexist in a person's heart. Therefore, we must make a choice either to abide in a heart of resentment or to abide in the truth. And the sooner and quicker we do this, the sooner we will give God a reason to forgive our sins and to lead us into an atmosphere of truth and righteousness.
Fourth, the fourth component of the price for dwelling in truth and righteousness, representing the atmosphere of our redemption, giving us the ability to live among the holiness of the devouring fire, is full separation from Babylon. This is what we have already discussed together on Sunday. However, when considering the price that gives us the ability to live among the devouring fire of holiness, this component again becomes in demand and relevant. Go forth from Babylon, flee from Chaldeans, with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob, Isaiah 48, 20. Again, utter it to the end of the earth, so utter it to the end of the earth in the boundaries of the body of Christ. This isn't across the round earth, but from the ends of the earth is the body of a person. The round earth does not have ends, but the ends of the earth that we are referring to here are the boundaries of the body of Christ and the boundaries of your body. Firstly, considering that the image of Babylon is a combination of divine revelation and divine order with human interpretations and with human order, it follows that for the right to abide in truth and righteousness, it is necessary to leave your people, your father's house, and the corrupt lusts of your soul, which in practice means to refuse the ability of the intellect to define what is good and evil. And secondly, it is necessary to leave a congregation that lacks the structure of divine theocracy, comprised of hierarchical subordination, the lack of which will result in human interpretation interpretations being mixed with divine revelations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, therefore I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. The fifth component of the price for dwelling in truth and righteousness is the necessity to, is the, is the necessity to submit our faith to the faith of God. Just as Abraham said, believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. To believe God in the preached word of a person sent by God means not only to agree with the commandments of the word, but also to enter into the process of fulfilling this command. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. Afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. I am going to leave you behind because we have two more components so that we don't leave them behind. So the sixth component of the price for dwelling in truth and righteousness, giving us the ability to live among the holiness of devouring fire, is preparing ourselves for a relationship with God as to our spouse. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So, the linen is given 
in order to enter into marriage, marital relations. Let me remind you that fine linen, pure and blight, yielded by the garments of righteousness and the dignity of imperishable pearls in which our earthly bodies will be clothed in anticipation of our hope. This is the fruit of righteousness grown in the eating of our heart from the seed of the word of truth. And therefore, in order to prepare oneself for a matrimonial relationship in marriage with the Lamb, it is necessary to dissolve the matrimonial relationship with reigning sin in one's earthly body in the face of the old man with his works. Whoever reigns in our body, he is our husband, right? As long as reigning sin in our body in the face of the old man will reign over us, we will be bound by the law with reigning sin as with our husband. When we, in the death of the Lord Jesus, died by the law to the law which binds us to the reigning sin that dwells in our body and gives strength to sin, only then could we enter into a marital relationship with reigning righteousness in the face of Jesus Christ. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. So with the law we died so we can belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The seven component of the price for dwelling in truth and righteousness, giving us the ability to live among the holiness, the devouring fire, and the dwelling of the Most High, is accepting the gospel of Christ into our heart, in which is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith, as a result of which we will have in ourselves eternal life. For it, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, Romans 1.17. The phrase from faith to faith means from the seed of the word of the faith accepted in the format of justification to the growth of the seed of faith in the format of righteousness. This is what this is referring to, from faith to faith, from seed to fruit. If in our worship the semantic meaning of the seed of faith called to reveal itself in the testimony of the fruit of faith is absent or in some way distorted and lost, the Holy Spirit will have no foundation in the gospel of Christ to reveal to us the truth of God and the collaboration of our faith with the faith of God. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So who is he for you and what he has done for you? And if you believe with your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that means you were resurrected in him and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Amen. Let us bow our heads and bend our knees and may the Lord bless us. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I thank you along with your people for that word that we have been able to have today. 
allow it to be sealed in our hearts so that you can look at these words as a reader and see that we have accepted your promise in the adoption of our body with your redemption. And despite the fact that things might not be turning off for us, but if we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you, and we call the inexistent promise of the adoption of our body as existent, allow your people to use this. May among your people be cursed every sinful thought and sin. Those who have been bound by the chains of sin, may they be taken out according to your mercy. Give them the courage to, to break their relationship with sin and to confess it before your face, before your anointed man. I thank you that despite the fact this virus is among us and that there are few of us today, we have begun to worship you, the living and true God, and we believe that this death will be stopped. Soon it will be stopped. Soon we will see your goodness on earth. May your mercy be blessed in this. And may your people be blessed in this mercy. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the hand of the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.